Hello and welcome to Film Couch, episode two. In this episode, we're going to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm Joe, and on the other end of the couch is Nicola. Hello, everyone. Let's get into this. Okay, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I watched this at the cinema. You watched it at the cinema. Unfortunately, mm. we didn't go on a date and watch it together. But um, <laughs> what were your what were your initial thoughts? I guess before going into the cinema, what did you kind of expect? Um, so I was I was really hyped uh, initially for the movie because um, I, I think it was like around the time Hateful Eight came out maybe a little after, or I don't know if before, but uh, Tarantino started saying that his 10th film would be his last. You said you're going to make, you're only going to make 10 movies in your career. This is number eight. Mm-hmm. Is Are you really only going to make two more movies after this one? Well, that's the idea. That's the idea. I mean, one of the things about it, though, it, uh, where I'm coming from, I actually think a lot of directors, I don't think it's that much of a tragedy. It'll probably take me eight years to do that, all right? So we'll see what, how, how everyone feels eight years from now. But... Uh, uh, <laughs> But I think a lot of directors, they talk about, oh, I want to do this thing and that thing and this thing and that thing, but I have time to do this and time to do that. And I actually think they, they have far less time than they think they do. Uh, so I, I knew it was just sort of like a matter of watching his... I, I mean, I, I knew that whatever we were getting from him was just going to be the last thing we were going to see from him. So, I mean, and he's a filmmaker I've always liked and enjoyed his movies. So it's, it's sad to see like one of the few like original directors working nowadays to just say he's calling it quits and... And that's it. So I was I was pretty hyped, and of course, once I saw the trailer, and I actually read, and and, and sort of heard about what it it was uh, what the movie was going to be about, I I think I was hyped even more. Um, not necessarily because of the Madsen yeah. thing. I mean, yeah, that was interesting, of course, but uh, for me, it was really mostly because he was sort of going back to a more contemporary era, and uh, mm-hmm. seeing dialogue like like the type that we used to see in films like Pulp Fiction or maybe Jackie Brown. I was really excited Yeah, for I was going to say. So, yeah, the contemporary touch is a lot more, su- uh, a lot more um, com- comparable to Pulp Fiction, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? I didn't mean to do that. Please, continue. And, um, yeah. And and also because it was you know it's a it's a movie made in Los Angeles. I mean uh, I don't know if he was born in Los Angeles, but he's from California. I'm pretty sure, or maybe not. But uh, I mean it, it just seemed like that was something that like really struck a chord with him. So I, I it, like whenever a director does something a little more personal like that, it, it you 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 can really tell they're gonna do uh, I guess very interesting work. So I mean all those things combined. Yeah, and I think you couldn't have used a better word there when you used the word personal. And when you said, you know, this is something that that struck a chord with with Tarantino. Because this film, I think, was Mm -hmm. so personal to him. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what I I think about that later. Um, But I I actually, you kind of taken me a little bit by surprise there. This is the last film Tarantino's ever going to do. I thought it was like his second to last. No, it's his second to last. It's just, I mean, I, I know that we're getting very close to the countdown, so. Ah, right, yeah. Do yeah. you have any idea what the next one's going to be? 
Some people were speculating that it was going to be the third Kill Bill, but I, I think um, I read in an interview that he said that he considers like the Kill Bill saga to be just one movie. Never say never. We'll see. All right. You know, uh, uh, when it comes to Kill Bill 3, uh, Uma would really like to do it. We, we talk about it every once in a while or so. All right. Uh. So if he were to make the third Kill Bill, it, would, it wouldn't count as his 10th movie. Um, if that's true, that would be great. Because, I, mean, uh, I mean, making it a trilogy and, and finishing it with the idea that he, in, that he had previously mentioned for yeah for uh for the story and then getting another movie on top of that that would be phenomenal yeah absolutely um as to like any stories he might consider i i have no clue i mean he's he's even said that he has no idea he has no plans on what he would do so i mean i wouldn't be surprised mm -hmm. if if we're looking like at a window of maybe like five years till we get something from him yeah and i'll wait <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i mean i i'm i'm not um a connoisseur of Tarantino's work and I really need to watch uh, everything he's done. I've, I haven't seen any of the Kill Bills, but um, yeah, I need to catch up there. But I mean, I, you know, after watching um, some of his uh, latest films and after finally watching Pulp Fiction after people were, you know, bugging me for years and years and years um, and after getting a little bit more into film in general, I can really, really appreciate what he does. And, I have not appreciated Tarantino's work as much as I did in this film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It is just so good. <laughs> and, you know, this is, this is, I feel like every film we talk about, it's just going to be me just saying how good it is. <laughs> but honestly, it, from I, I was really, really, really nervous about mm -hmm. Tarantino telling the... Um, you know, the, the story of the Manson family and the Tate murder and the uh, LaBianca murder as well. Yeah. I was, I was nervous about that because that is a really touchy topic and Tarantino isn't, you know, isn't known for his, um, well, I guess it's kind of harsh to say, but he's not known for his tact when it comes to things like mm -hmm. that. Um, maybe, maybe it's wrong to say not that he's, you know, not tactful, but he's, he's very outspoken and that's definitely seen in, uh, in his, in his films. So what I think, um, what you mentioned earlier was about how personal it is. What I'd like to say about that is I see this film as a from the heart kind of nod toward various things that Tarantino clearly holds in high regard and things that you know he's passionate about things that he loves yeah. i think it's it's like it's an ode to to film it's an ode to directing to actors to the late 60s you know to his kind of era um it's an ode to the golden age of rock and this is the part that i really enjoyed about the film Maybe it's an ode to Westerns. Mm -hmm. It's either an ode to Westerns or a piss take. What are you looking at, bounty killer? Looking at an ugly owl who's about to get his jaw busted. Amateurs try and take men in alive. Amateurs usually don't make it. I can't really decide. Yeah. It's a bit of a thin line, but either way, I appreciate it. I mean, yeah, it's... it's um. It's everything you said, pretty much. If if there's any movie of his where he just sort of where, where he sort of showed off all his knowledge, and uh, and 
expertise on on just film and television in general, like his knowledge and love of pop of uh, pop culture and and things like that. It's it's I mean it's this one by far. Um, yeah. In in terms of western, I mean, yeah, there's there's I mean, it definitely the 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 context of the story deals with it directly. You come down here for a for a Boston social, or we gonna talk price? How much? I'd say fifty thousand dollars would buy me a whole lot of chicken mole in Mexico. Um, but I I would say maybe like uh, more of like a like a stylistic influence in of. Uh, like westerns as a stylistic influence in his films, you would mostly see that in, I mean, something like *The Hateful Eight, or I, I would say even like *Kill Bill* to some extent. Aside from like the obvious martial arts, uh, the, the like martial arts movie references. But but yeah, I mean, you 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 do see you you definitely get a sense of that. I think you also sort of get a sense of his own like consciousness that that these are the last films he's gonna do. And uh, and I think why do you say that? Um, the thing is, and 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 this is why I think your take would be way more interesting than mine, like as to how you perceived the film and what you thought about it. Because I mean, you, you did mention this is like the first the first Tarantino film you've seen, or have you seen any other ones before? Um, no, I've seen I've, I've seen a couple before. I've seen Pulp Fiction, and I mean, if if I could look at the list, yeah. that maybe be another. Yeah. Okay. But I, I, at least I mean. I've seen, I've seen, I mean, he doesn't have that many. I think he has, yeah, I mean, well, he has, the the, the next one would be his 10th, so yeah, he doesn't have that many. But uh, the, the mm -hmm. reason why I said maybe, like, your input would be more interesting is because I I enjoyed the movie immensely, but I could tell, uh, and, and I think a lot of people have, uh, like, shared the same opinion, that it was, like, one of the least Tarantino films I've seen, like, the one that deviates the most from his... Uh, like uh from his traditional way of uh narrating or of storytelling and um right. it's it's like way more of a laid back kind of movie like a very sort of like you know just sit down chill and just watch whatever's happening in the life of these people um yeah because obviously like a movie like kill bill or like reservoir dogs i mean they're his first first films uh but but the plot is just is constructed way more tightly than than this one, for example. Not not necessarily to the detriment of this movie, right. but uh, but you can clearly tell there's a huge difference in that. Yeah, I think as someone who's you know not seen all of his work, one of the things that really stood out to me with this film compared to just just other films in general is mm -hmm. the watchability of it. It's just so yeah. watchable. It's so enjoyable, and it, it, it's not complicated. And it. I I thought that I was the you know the kind of guy who loved to watch you know deep, twisted psychological thrillers, but watching this film just I enjoyed it. I enjoyed every moment of it. Um, it was just really really easy to watch and straightforward. Yeah. So uh, let's let's talk a little bit about Brad Pitt and well we should say Leonardo DiCaprio first and, mm -hmm. and Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt's name should come up second, but Brad Pitt's been getting a little bit more attention for his role as supporting actor as Cliff Booth. It's Cliff Booth. Just stopped in to say hello and see how you're doing. John Wilkes? Oh. Cliff Booth. Yeah. Rather than Leonardo DiCaprio's Rick Dolan, which I personally think is not fair. Because <laughs> I think Brad Pitt was, was great, but 
I'm going to say, you know, subjectively, I, th- I think that Leonardo DiCaprio's performance uh, was phenomenal. And I think it, wa- it did have the edge on, on Brad Pitt. What do you think? Um, I think they were both great. I mean, I, I think, uh, I can't think of a single bad performance in a movie. I think mm-hmm. everything was done great, even like down to the supporting characters. Uh, well, I mean, you don't really have supporting. I guess the closest to supporting would be uh, would be uh, Margot Robbie's character, right? Um, but just like the, I mean, anywhere from the director, who um, who shoots um, Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, episode in Lancer. Evil Hamlet scares yeah. people. All right. Oh, and by the way. Mm. Beaner Bronco Buster? Yeah. Where the hell did that come from? <laughs> Improv. <laughs> that was wonderful. It was just, that was a to, um, I don't know, Kurt Russell's character. I got a four-man team here, Rick. If I need more than that, I got to get it approved. And, you know, I, I, I got to look after my... Or even, best. like, Kurt Russell's, uh, the character of his wife. I mean, they're, they're all phenomenal. Oh, my God, what the f*** did you do to my car? What the f*** did you do to her car? I threw this little into it, but I did not know it was her car. But obviously, you know the the, the two uh, the two main pillars are DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. I enjoyed both immensely, but I, I could sort of see why people. Um, I mean, nobody ever, you know, you know, nobody's criticizing Leonardo DiCaprio. He did a phenomenal job. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? <laughs> but I can see why uh, more people have taken a shine to Brad Pitt's character. Um, I think, and I think it goes with the idea of what you said of how enjoyable the movie is. I mean, he's just such a laid-back character. He's, it, it doesn't even seem like he's putting any effort in it. You know, that's not my car. That's my boss's car. And if something were to happen to my boss's car, well, I'd get in trouble. Right. The the character I'm, I, I prefer Cliff mm-hmm. as a character to yeah. Rick as a person. Mm-hmm. But I think. Um, it kind of felt like sometimes Brad Pitt's just kind of being Brad Pitt. Like you said, you know, that kind of effortless yeah. and which, which is, I know, you know, is that a great performance or, you know, is it too laid back? What does the character call for? You know, but yeah. I, I really think that, um, uh, Leonardo's performance as Rick Dolan was just, just amazing. You know, it, his emotional, you know, drops and his ups and downs mm-hmm. were. It's official old buddy. Well, it has been. What are you talking about? What did that guy tell you? Told me the goddamn truth is what he told me. Incredible. And I think he had a harder job, obviously, as as leading actor, but I think yeah. he had a harder job than than, than Brad Pitt in, in the sense that um, he had more to, to do, more kind of um, despair and changes in, in his character to, to convey. Yeah. Um, but while we're on that topic, I want to talk a little bit about Cliff. Uh, he's a great character. And he is one of the things that I loved about the film, and, and that yeah, like you said, it made it so watchable. Was he's such a good friend? Good friend, Cliff. I tried. And he's such a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> and um, but but to kind of contrast that, I noticed that in his first scene alone, he's kind of razzing down the street, pretty recklessly, in in his uh-huh. car. Um, yeah. You know the music's blaring, and that. That is a bit contrasting to to what you see um, in the rest of the, the film, and, and paired with that, the, the notion that he killed his own wife. Huh. The dude killed his fucking wife. 
Come on, mate. You don't believe that old shit, do you? Yes, Rick, I do. Which is only hinted at like twice, I think, or, or mm. three times. Gives him a bit of depth and a bit of complexity. Um, and I don't think it's one that we'll ever really understand because mm -hmm. it's not, you know, you don't know, we don't know much about Cliff. Yeah. So is he really this great, 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 amazing stand-up guy, you know, the friend that everyone wants? Or, you know, what's what's the, the history there? I mean, yeah, I think he leaves it ambiguous for a reason. Um, the, the the thing that stands out the most, as you said, and, and, and you can, I mean, in a sense, you can say the movie is really about the friendship between these two guys, and that's that's really the, the heart of the film. You gonna come in and watch my FBI? Well, I just figured we would. I got a six-pack in the back, thought we'd order a pizza. All right. But, uh, I mean, sort of going back to what you said, I think it, it is kind of true. I mean, may, maybe why you preferred DiCaprio's performance, because Brad Pitt really just plays Brad Pitt. <laughs> I mean, he really, he really, he really just plays himself. But I think maybe he was, it, it, it's like the planets aligned, and he played the character he was just meant to play his whole life because yeah. he just has that personality, like without putting any effort in it, and that's why it worked so well here. Uh, and, and in terms of like Cliff Booth, the character, though, um, I, I guess that sort of mystery is what adds to the charm. Um, mm. I mean, not necessarily about the idea of killing his wife. But, I mean, yeah, you, you can't really be surprised by something like that from Tarantino, I guess. Right, yeah. It's, um, it is, it did throw me off a little bit where, you know, he's in the, um, um, I think, yeah, it's Kurt Russell, right? The, the director of the, the, oh, what does Kurt Russell play in that then? No, Kurt it's Russell plays, uh, I mean, he, he, he has something to do with production of the, of the Green Hornet episode. All right, yeah. Um, I don't think he's a director. Because I, 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 I think DiCaprio was like trying to convince him to use uh, Brad Pitt as a stunt double, right? That's you, right. You just put him in the wardrobe, all right? And what's it going to hurt? Then if you need him, you got him, all right? Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. The next thing I want to talk about, mm -hmm. I've got a, a, couple of, a couple of things on my list here, a couple of really big things. <laughs> sure. The next thing that we can't avoid is the representation of the Manson family. Yeah. And I loved it. George isn't blind! You're the one! Now, let me just clear clear the air here. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people, more than most people might suspect, have this romanticized idea about what the family was. Yeah. I think that, you know, a lot of people might think it's uh, this group of, of runaways and they stood up to society and they found their place kind of along like-minded, free-spirited companions um and it's about music and love and getting high and welcome to our community thanks for having me and thank you for giving our precious pussy a ride home think nothing of it we love pussy <laughs> yes we do that's kind of what made you know the 60s go round back then that's what it was all about right so you know people get this idea that it's this nice hippie community um but i think that's a, a bit of a major fallacy, and it's one that Tarantino kind of calls people out on. Because he, he conveys the family, and he shows the true colours of these kids, and it, it shows people that, yeah, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't like you think it was. Yeah. Fix it. <laughs> you. And I love that. It kind of took out any glamour 
that the family might have had. I'm not yeah. saying that they were glamorous. I'm saying that people thought they were, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm not too well-versed in the in the whole, like, uh, Manson family history. I mean, I, I think more in terms of that, yeah, I guess of the era of the period. I mean, that was, I, I really can't add any more praise to that. Uh, for the family itself, no, I just, I, I guess I wouldn't have any, 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 any criticism in that regard. Also, again, because I'm not, I'm not too, I'm not too knowledgeable about the story behind that. Um, I, I was a little surprised about like the lack of, of Manson, like yeah. the presence of Manson in the movie, uh, just because I mean he is the you know the like the the face of the whole family. Of course, I mean they carry his name for a reason, but uh, yeah. but um, I don't know. I mean the, again, I, I I know that he's that Tarantino's considering, or I, I don't even think he's considering. I I I could swear I read it somewhere that. He's um, that it's something he's planning to do on making the the show like a mini series for Netflix, the movie a mini series for Netflix, because he shot a lot of material, wow. and I know he shot more scenes with with the the actor who played Manson, and uh, I mean I don't know I I think the movie could work great as a mini series as well, so yeah maybe we'll get a couple more scenes that uh of of anybody who's uh, who's got some like Manson thirst that didn't uh, yeah. quite, <laughs> didn't if quite any, satisfy if anyone in has... the movie. If anyone has Manson thirst and they want to see a great representation of Manson, um, Nicola, what's it called? Mindhunter. Mindhunter. Yeah, I got that yeah. on my list. Oh, man. It blew my mind. Have you not seen the Manson scene? Uh, I saw the scene. Yeah, well, I saw one of the scenes. I don't know if there's like a particular scene that's, that's I don't know, more uh, become viral or something like that. But I mean, yeah, the, the guy does it. It's the same guy, right? The same actor from Once Upon a Time. Yeah, I think it is. Um, but he's way better in Mindhunter. Way better. It's it's crazy. Because I've watched a lot of um, interviews, mm-hmm. uh, Charles Manson interviews. Yeah. And my my interest in, in Charles Manson and, and the story will be explained a little bit later as I answer a question <laughs> from a listener. Um, but it's uh, it's nothing it's nothing dark or anything like that. But yeah. Um, his representation, the representation of Manson in Mindhunter is just uncanny. It's unbelievably spot on. Yeah, he's a family man too with his keys and his gun. He's teaching his children right now. They're learning his beliefs and they'll be living them. And you, you're teaching your children. Look at yourself. Judge the lies you live in. But anyway, we're not talking about that. Anyway, I wanted to mention... um, what you said about Manson not appearing much in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, I think that it was intentional. Maybe it wasn't, because you said he shot a lot of footage of of Manson and he plans to use it in in a miniseries. But I think, you know, a lot of people were on the edge of the seats. Um, Like, I I think, as you were, waiting Mm -hmm. for the, the Manson scene, you know? Yeah, waiting for oh the introduction and the performance and you know how's Tarantino going to depict him, and I think this is kind of Tarantino saying you know what, f- that guy he's not a big deal he doesn't need to be any kind of star in this film because he was just you know part of this group who I've already represented nothing special yeah. you know mm-hmm. thought it was kind of in- intentional in that way I hope so anyway and and if not you know Tarantino if you're listening you can uh, you can say it was intentional because it, it's cooler that way. <laughs> 
Yeah. Dude, if he answers this podcast, man, I'm happy. I think we've completed our mission. Yeah, yeah. I, we should. That should be our mission statement. Yeah, even should if be. it's just to like tell us to go f- ourselves and. <laughs> <laughs> you two don't know what you're talking about. Oh my god! Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and mentioning that about um, you know how I think Tarantino was kind of purposely avoiding putting Manson in the in the film for longer than necessary. Um, I also think if you look at Cliff's character. Cliff is pretty, you know, has quite a lot of bad luck. You know, mm-hmm. I'd say that he, he isn't that successful when it comes to um, the way that society treats him. Mm-hmm. Um, society isn't really good to him, but he's still this stand-up dude, right? He's still this great friend and this great guy, and he makes proper choices. Mm-hmm. I think that was intentional. Um, I think, again, this is kind of Tarantino's big you to manson kind of yeah. saying yeah society fucks you but that doesn't mean you can act like a dick, you know yeah yeah i mean you're you you're definitely more up to date on the story but the the manson family you've expressed before that you're like uh i mean that you had great interest in it at some point and 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 again man i'm i'm, I'm very ignorant on the subject but um mm-hmm. i do have a question for you by the way yeah i'm not sure who it was it's oh yeah it's this it's a director called Boots Riley. He uh, right. he made a film called uh, "Sorry to Bother You." Just it's a movie that came out like a year, two years ago. It's it was pretty good. I enjoyed it. And mm-hmm. uh, he made a comment when "Once Upon a Time" came out that sort of criticized the decision behind the the last scene. Uh, not not gonna like dive deep into the last scene necessarily, like the whole the final act, but like mm-hmm. the the motive that the the Manson uh, members have for you know going to the house trying to kill all the people, and uh, well in the movie they use the motive of you know violence and Hollywood and how it's you know like glorified violence and 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 like and and like sort of normalized it, and that's sort of their way of not necessarily getting back you know at 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 the people who have glorified that violence, but. Um, I guess it's just like their reaction. They, they try to find like a reason or a motive for doing the killing. And um, anyways, in this comment that this director did criticizing the movie, he said that like the real reason behind the Manson family murders was this notion of, I think they, they called it Helter Skelter, which was like yeah. starting like a, like a mixed race war. Uh, and, and, yep. and that's why they were, I mean... Again, I don't know if this is true or not, but they, they ideally they, they killed the they killed Tate and all the other people of the house because they wanted to start a race war and they wanted to blame yep. those murders on like I don't know, like a group of African Americans living in LA at the time. Uh, so he criticized it because he said, you know, it how would you not show the true motive of these killers and, you know, make it violence and and, and, and you know, use your own uh like made up reason for it. Uh, and I wanted to get your take on that. I mean, I, I I don't know again if the whole helter skelter thing is true. I've from my, I've been like the the very few research I've been able to do in the past couple of days. It's I mean they did have that idea, but it's not necessarily confirmed whether they were actually doing the murder for that reason. Uh, I can definitely yeah. see Tarantino sort of like twisting it 
to suit to suit his purposes. But I mean, in the sense that it's the the idea of violence in film and media in general is something so personal to him, right? That uh, I I can see why he did that, and I wouldn't necessarily criticize it. Yeah. And yeah, I just I just wanted to get your take on that. Yeah. So it's a good question, and I think the end of the film, the final act, is the part that kind of made it for me, uh, just because it isn't played out. You know, Tarantino twists it intentionally, and, and Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth are fictional characters made for this final twist, because without yeah. them, it, it wouldn't have played out the way that it did. It would have played out the way that it, that it did in real life, supposedly. So, okay, mm-hmm. so let's start with why um, Tex and... The, the girls went to kill uh, Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie. So in the the story that we know that was, you know, in the media in, in 1969 and, and shortly after that, um, whether, whether confirmed by Manson himself or not, it's still what uh, Tex Watson, you know, who's in prison still, mm-hmm. uh, confirms to be true. The reason that they went there is because Manson was on the verge of becoming a rock star, right? He was becoming, he, he knew the Beach Boys. He was, um, he was Hollywood, you know? And yep. it, was in, it was in that house, the house where Sharon Tate uh, lived, where um, a music producer, uh, Melcher, Terry Melcher, it had actually refused to make a record with, with Manson. He, you know, he got so close and that was like the... the um, the moment that was necessary for Manson to kind of, you know, make it or break it. And, and he lost. Mm-hmm. They said, no, they rejected him. And that's when the, you know, the hate Hollywood seed was planted in, in Manson's yeah. mind. Um, and then he kind of, the, the thing about the Helter Skelter thing is he was obsessed with the Beatles' Why album. Yeah. And he actually thought that the Beatles were given this message of, you know, um, of race and, and how whites are superior to, to blacks. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, like you said, he was trying to kind of recreate this crime, um, you know, kind of ticking off a personal motive by killing people who lived in this house, this sacred house to Manson, um, and also trying to frame, um, yeah, African-Americans for it. And it was called Helter Skelter, and they wrote pigs in blood on the fridges and stuff in the actual events. So that was the reason behind it all. Um, Manson claimed, um, up, even up until his death, which was only a few years ago. Was it last year? Was it 2019 or 2018? Um, yeah, most it was two years ago. Yeah. But it was fairly recently. Yeah. But he claimed up until his death, you know, I never told anyone to kill anyone and blah, blah, blah. Uh, he brainwashed those kids and he, he pretty much almost definitely told them to to go and carry out those murders. Um, but I guess the question that you're asking me, which I'm giving a bit of a history lesson first on, um, was <laughs> what do I think about the twist? Yeah. The twist for me was absolutely perfect. It was what made the film for me, it was that kind of the epiphany moment when Cliff Booth, because everything, everything was kind of happening how it happened, you know, as, as the media depicts. So I was, yeah. I was really tense in the scene. I was like, Oh, 
you know, are they going to actually show Sharon Tate get killed as a pregnant lady as it happened? Because that's just rough. And the moment that they break into Dolan's house and, you know, Cliff has just smoked the acid-dipped cigarette. We, we go. <laughs> this, this scene is just amazing. Um, and the moment that he does the... Text. to his dog and the dog runs over to text that's the moment where it all clicked for me and i was like oh okay so this is what he's doing and i loved it i think that it's um it's such a perfect twist and it's such a um it, it's so relevant to the title once upon a time in hollywood it's it's a fictional story about how the events could have played out and i think it's it's how it's showing that these hippies were no more than these um, delinquents who got lucky trying to do what, mm-hmm. what they were trying to do. Because if there yeah. were someone like like Cliff Booth around at that time, you know, if there was someone living next door or someone in next door, then, you know, these little shits would wouldn't have gotten away with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wouldn't have happened. So I think... Like, you know, like I keep mentioning, I think it's Tarantino's way of saying, screw them, you know, screw them. I'm not yeah. even going to, I'm not even give them the satisfaction of, um, I guess, putting in a budget to replay this scene because screw them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's how I think of it. I really, really loved it. And again, you know, that we saw it earlier in the mac and cheese scene. That's such a great <laughs> yeah. scene. <laughs> Is that a wine? A creature of the senses. What did I tell you about whining? You whine, you don't eat. I will throw this in the trash. I don't want to, but I will. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. Yeah. I love how the, the film in general is just embellished with these these amazing little scenes that are just so easy to watch, like the, the mac and cheese feeding his dog scene in his, um, in his little caravan. Um, but that comes back, and that's, that's the best part for me. I love that bit. <laughs> <laughs> Sticks, man. Yeah. Yeah, it all came into place from there on. Brings me to a question, and I said I was going to kind of bring to light why I'm interested in this, um, you know, what happened with Manson in 69. We we got a question from a listener, got an email. Thank you for, for writing in. To anyone listening, you can write us um, questions. What What we look for... I guess what we would look for more than anything is questions about the next film we're going to do so we can bring them to the podcast that we're doing. This gives a bit more bit more to chew on. But Zan wrote in, and Zan asks, have either of you read a Charles Manson biography? Uh, no, I haven't. Yeah. I read the, it's called Manson, in his own words, The Shocking Confessions of the Most Dangerous Man Alive. And it was written in 1988. And it was when he was in prison. He had um, a journalist who he trusted, one of very mm-hmm. few called uh, Noel Lemons. And Noel Lemons promised to write his biography because obviously Manson didn't have the resources in prison to write a biography. He said, basically, you just, you just tell me what happened and I'm just going to write down what you say. Um, so it's a really interesting insight, whether reliable or not, you know, what had the way that he tells the story is all from um, the perspective of Manson himself. But with that being said, it's still really interesting and a really interesting read. And there are part, there are times where you do um, empathise with what what Manson's been through. But it's 
by no means whatsoever um, it doesn't justify what he did. Uh, and it, the book itself is uh, it's a it's it's a good read. It's a really interesting thing to read because um, it goes back to Manson's history. But mm. you know the key thing that's that I think is missed out is Manson's a liar. There's no there's no denying that he's a he's a liar and he's manipulative and he's he's good at talking. He gives off the impression of being intelligent, um, and I think that he is bright. You know, he's, he's he. So he was a, a bright, charismatic person, but he he mm-hmm. was evil as well, and he was full of vengeance. So it's it's an interesting book. So that's that's why I'm just kind of justifying myself and why I know so much about it. That, that's why I know so much about it because I read I read the book, and I've huh. watched interviews and stuff. So one of the other questions I'm going to ask you this question, Nicola. Uh huh. Um. Zan asked this question. <laughs> this is a good question. <laughs> are the references before your time? And she adds, may I pretend they are before mine? <laughs> so are the references before your time? Are the references in the movie before my time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was born in 92, man. Uh, I, I don't Same. think... Uh, I couldn't think... I mean, that's not to say that he wouldn't put a reference from like... Uh, I mean, not that it would, not that it wouldn't only just that it it wouldn't just not make sense. But uh, I don't know, sort of like uh, maybe not a reference, but making it relevant to some issue or topic that's that's uh, fairly popular nowadays. I, I mean, kind of like the in in the in Django Unchained, something I didn't like at all was the fact that uh, among the I mean, not only did he use the score from Ennio Morricone, uh, which was, you know, like a like a score typical of like a Western uh, in in that era, uh, but uh, but he used like a rap song. I forgot what scene. It was just uh, it was just like a montage, I think. But uh, he used he used a rap song, and I didn't like that at all because it was just extremely. Uh, I think the word is anachronistic. And, uh, but I mean, I guess in that sense, yeah, it would be, I don't know if that would be a reference necessarily, I, but. I don't know what anachronistic means. Could you, could you tell me <laughs> what that means? Sort of like when there's a, it's, uh, not a contradiction, but when it's, there's like a discordant use of different elements from different eras. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I didn't like that at all. Well, I, going back to Once Upon a Time. Uh, no, I mean definitely. I, c- I couldn't think of a single reference that would be in my time. <laughs> <laughs> so did that did that affect your kind of enjoyability of the film? Uh, I mean, there. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of jokes that I didn't pick up on. Uh, like every time they reference some old TV show. Thursdays at eight thirty. Only on NBC. Like yeah. the jokes that I don't know Kurt Russell does. Every, I mean, it's it's very common in Tarantino movies, so it's nothing that would like limit my enjoyment of the film itself. Right. But uh, but no, no, not at all. I mean, uh, a lot of those things are always you know very uh, very rewarding, I guess, in like a second or third watch. Also, I mean, rewarding as as you watch it and 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 grow up and you know. Right. And uh, you're able to pick up on those things, and and you find it, uh, you find it, I guess, more enjoyable. But 
No, no, I didn't. I, I never have an issue with those things. I, I always expect them from Tarantino movies. So, and usually the most yeah. like subtle and uh, and uh, like the most. Uh, I don't know. I mean, the guy references also. I mean, I'm I'm sure he references things that like nobody but but he has watched. So, uh, I guess you yeah, just watch true. him enjoy himself. <laughs> yeah, goes goes back to you know this film being a very personal to him. Yeah, which is. Which is a great way to work, I think, because that's how you, that's how you, how you truly create something. Um, I, I don't know. That's 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 real. If it just comes from you, whether you, you know, he. I think Tarantino in, in this film, he doesn't try to please anyone. Um, and I think that's just a Tarantino thing in general, right? He's just doing it for himself. I get that impression. Um, which yeah. works. Yeah, I mean he's had a lot of uh, a lot of like critics detractors over the years. So uh, I mean, yeah, you you definitely get a sense of like he doesn't give a he doesn't give a crap about like the the criticism, either if it's uh, you know even if it's about the violence in his movies or if it's uh, about like you know the quote unquote stealing of uh, of other movies that nobody's ever watched. He doesn't give a crap about it. Yeah, um, reminds me of <laughs> the infamous uh, BBC interview that he did. Um, I'll let you guys listen to a little excerpt of that right now. <laughs> let me ask you about uh, violence. I mean, you, you said, you know, everyone knows you make violent movies, you like violent movies. Mm -hmm. Why do you like making violent movies? I think it's good cinema. But why are you so sure that there's no link between enjoying movie violence and enjoying real violence? I don't, I, well, I'm going to tell you why I'm so sure. Don't ask me a question like that. I'm not going to, I'm not biting. I refuse your question. Why? Because I refuse your question. I'm not your slave and you're not my master. No, it's my, it's my job to try and ask you to. And that's I'm all, shutting you know? your butt down. And that's, that's entirely your, that's entirely <laughs> your. You've seen that, right? Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm shutting you down. <laughs> uh, Tarantino's kind of a firecracker, so. He, he doesn't <laughs> like you, he just, uh, he's going to blow up in your face. Yes, this is the perfect transition over to something pretty big that I wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. Bruce Lee. Yeah. <laughs> so, quote from Bruce Lee's daughter. She says that um, Bruce Lee was depicted as, and I quote, an arrogant asshole who was full of hot air. Now, before I move on to Tarantino's response... What did you think about the depiction of Bruce Lee in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Um, again, I'd have to first uh, admit my just very general knowledge of Bruce Lee. I mean, I've watched mm -hmm. I've watched some of his movies. I really enjoyed them. I think he was, uh, I guess, uh, in the context of what he was, you know, a martial arts actor and everything. I, I think it was. It, I mean, what I've watched was was great. But as 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 far as like his personal life or his personality on set, or general, I really wouldn't know what to tell you. But I, I, I do think it's a little exaggerated, because, I mean, from the, I mean, off the bat, you can tell it's, the, it's a very comical performance. I, I really right. don't think he was, like, that saney, because he does come out, like, he does come off like that in the movie. Um, but but I, I, do th I also do think that, aside from, like, his arrogance, which, again, it might not be warranted, and, and people would have a just, I guess, in a sense, like a justifiable reason, people who knew him or his personality, you know, for criticizing that. I, I don't, I don't really find uh, valid 
the the criticism of of him being beaten by Cliff. I mean, you they pretty much established that Cliff is you know he's Chuck Norris, but yeah, like times a thousand. So I mean, you know, he can beat Bruce Lee. It's it's making a point in the movie that the guy's just you know he's unstoppable. So yeah, exactly. And I think you're kind of saying that a part of you is saying that it wasn't. It wasn't that fair, and it could have been a little bit less harsh, right? Uh, the portrayal of Bruce yeah. Lee itself, uh, yeah, I guess maybe like the comical over-the-top thing. Okay. Um, see, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of disagree with you there, but I'm I'm not I don't really have a strong <laughs> argument. I just liked it, and yeah. I think um, this this was Tarantino's response to to what Bruce Lee's daughter said. I don't think I make Bruce Lee look that bad. I, I, I will admit I'm having a little bit of fun at his expense. All right, I will admit that uh, there's a touch of parody uh, in there. However, at the same time. Uh, Bruce Lee was kind of an arrogant guy. I mean, what I was, uh, you know, uh, the way he was talking is kind of, I've, I didn't just make a lot of that up. I'd heard him say things like that to that effect. And even the thing, you know, people are saying, well, he never said uh, uh, he, would, uh, uh, he could beat up Muhammad Ali. Uh, yeah, he did, all right? Not only did he say that, his wife, Linda Lee, said that. In her, the first biography I ever read was Linda Lee's Bruce Lee, The Man Only I Knew, and she, absolutely said it now that's just to me that's great i'm not saying that trashing celebrities beyond the grave is always in good taste mm -hmm. um but i think it does humanize bruce lee a bit I, it was just you know it's just another guy after all and i think bruce lee is this kind of you know people think of him as this superhuman philosophical man who could do anything and maybe he was a great guy but there's nothing wrong with uh you know knocking him down a peg or two <laughs> is that is that wrong for me to say <laughs> i mean he did knock him down like more than a peg or two <laughs> you think but but no that, that scene was immensely enjoyable man I, I, it was it was it was a lot of fun they unleash as much punishment as they have to to defeat the other guy but in martial arts tournaments i do to win what they do to win i unleash all my you can't really take it that seriously i mean Tarantino loves Bruce Lee. He's, you know, he's Kill Bill is like, I mean, great a great part of Kill Bill is like an homage to to Bruce Lee. I mean, from this from the suit of uh, of Uma, Uma Thurman's character to to just sort of like the the style of 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 the movie and everything. So I mean, you, you can tell that he worships somebody like Bruce Lee. So I mean, any anything he does is just uh, for the sake of you know good fun. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's just a joke. <laughs> it's just a joke. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that actually that Kill Bill was um, in any relation to to Bruce Lee. Well, I guess the inspiration, at least. I was just about to round it off, but there's one one more thing that we haven't talked about. I sure. think we really need to talk about. <laughs> the music. I... Do you know what? After watching it for the second time, I had on my TV a Spotify playlist playing for like the rest of the week yeah. of like, you know, 60s rock, late 60s rock, like all, all the good stuff. Um, and I really thoroughly enjoyed it. And I, you know, I kind of, that music really transports you and it completes that portrayal 
of uh, of the late sixties that he already did so well with with costume and, and mm-hmm. set design and all that stuff. Yeah. But it, you know, it's that it's that kind of uh, Woodstock easygoing feeling, and it, you see that through all the characters as well with the music. I'm going to give it to you in, a, in an even better question. Okay. Because this was a question from Zan as well. Sure. Do the songs set the scenes or simply reflect the times? That's a really good, a good question. question. Yeah. 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 I mean, with with Tarantino, it's a very particular question. Uh, th- this one friend told me, I don't know if it's true. I mean, he, he's, a, he's a huge Tarantino nerd. Um, but he told me that Tarantino has like a, I don't know if a room or a house, I, I, that's probably not a house, but he, I mean, he probably has like a whole a whole floor uh, where he just has stacks upon stacks of vinyls. And every time he's he goes to make a movie, uh, he goes into that room and just, you know, picks out something here, something there, listens to it, and then, I mean, but he has just like a whole place just designated for that reason. And I mean, yeah, you, you, he's he's always been. I mean, if if among the many things he's famous for in his movies, it's you know his choice of music. It's a very particular choice of music, a lot of which is you know has become iconic over the years. Uh, I, I think I, I don't want it to sound so bad, but I think it's something he's gotten like a little bit sloppy over the years. Mm. Um. Yeah, o- overall, like the music choice for for Once Upon a Time, I think it was great. I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna tell you like yeah. the soundtrack is it's bad. I mean, the guy's got phenomenal taste in music. It's great. Just a lot of times, it just seems like he's throwing something in there without it necessarily having any meaning. And I'm not saying that it has to have meaning, but sometimes it just seems a little haphazard. Um. Uh. I mean, there's a scene, for example, where Cliff is driving with—he's uh, driving in the car and he's—he's uh, he's just speeding through the streets at night. And uh, you know, you go through like three different songs. And, and yeah, of course, you know, it's—it's it's sort of to give you, you know, the idea of like a short passage of time. You know, somebody's just speeding through the like the LA, LA streets at night, and you know, the radio's switching on and off different songs so yeah I can, I can sort of get that vibe but I guess from from somebody who's been so so careful about choosing music for his movies it, it I guess for me it seems a little off really? um what was great though was like his usage of this uh I think it's called KHJ which was like a like a radio program at the time and uh, that that really helps set the scene uh, th- that I, I guess that would go more along with the uh, with uh, the question that we we've been given, of like does it? It was like it it sets. What was the question again? The, <laughs> uh, so, do, do the songs set sure the had, scenes? Had it phrased right. Do the songs yeah. set the scenes or simply reflect the times? Yeah. So I think uh, sorry, it, it goes more along with the with the second part where it's it sort of like mostly reflects the times, and I, I think in that sense it works great. Because uh, he yeah. used uh, actual recordings of this same radio program to sort of, uh, you know, work as like an intro for the songs, and, and it, it does give you a, a very good like uh, general sense of being there at that time, and uh, and how people used to listen to the radio all the time back then. I mean, uh, again, it was it wasn't really a matter of you know switching songs or every now and then you just you know you you left it at one radio station and you heard everything from like the commercials to 
to like the jingles and then you know eventually play the song that you might like or not but yeah it, it gives a very good uh that 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 essence i think it plays it off very well i think so too i think that the the songs were not too particular like you say in in um conveying any kind of meaning or attaching any connotation to any scene it's just this is what they listen to you know they yeah i, I get the general sense throughout the entire film that um you know they drank they got high and they listened to this <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's, it's just a nice vibe to kind of to watch and uh, to listen to, and loads of vinyls. You know, Sharon Tate puts on the vinyl and she's dancing to it, and you've got yeah. um, Ro- Roman Polanski. I think it's Roman Polanski who's being conveyed, who's you know downstairs and um, he's listening to it too. And then at the end, they put on. It shows you how important music was to them back then, and and how kind of that that age of rock was so mm-hmm. um, important to what music is today as well. Because I I really think it is, and yeah, I loved it. I just think it was like you said. I see. The question is, do the songs set the scenes or simply reflect the times here? And I think the question kind of is almost saying that if it is just reflecting the times, then that's not as good as setting the scenes. But I think it's contextual. It, it works in this sense, and it works better than trying to get you know deep, give, give deep meaning with with music. It's better to just, in this case, set the times with the music. It works better. Mm-hmm. So I, I do have this one question. Um, I remember after I watched it at the cinema, and I asked you if you had any criticisms because I was in my honeymoon period, as I you know as I do, um, talking about how great it is, and I really wanted your, I really wanted you to. <laughs> take take the film off this pedestal that I held it on, and you mentioned the narration. I mean, it, it just seemed a little off because again, there's 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 sort of like no there's no order for it. I mean, it it seems again something like a little random because you hear it in the beginning of the movie for like ten seconds when he says that uh that Rick was lying uh, as to why Cliff oh, drives him around all the time. Gave me a ride. That's a big. F- why? Rick got his driver's license taken away for too many drunk driving tickets. Cliff drives him everywhere. Yeah. And then you hear it very, uh, pretty much near the the end when he sort of sets the the scene uh, right before the the you know well the when he what goes would to be Italy the murders. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. After that Musso and Frank's lunch meeting, Marvin did provide Rick job opportunities in the Italian film industry. Oh yeah, where he, I think yeah when he goes to Italy and then when he has like that uh. When he goes from like that drunken bout would be Rick and Cliff's final rodeo, and it just it just seemed a little random for me. I mean, I think the story would would have worked better with it if he had found a way to narrate those same things without it being voiceover. So the last thing, uh, or the other thing that I didn't like, and that was uh, way more noticeable the third time around, was uh, the editing. The, the, there were some really strange cuts throughout the movie. I mean, it didn't make sense. There are a couple. I mean, uh, there there might be more that I haven't noticed, but there are a couple. For example, in the scene where uh, where Leonardo DiCaprio is having like, well, he's not having dinner, but he meets up with Al Pacino's character, mm-hmm. and he sort of gives him like the he gives him the like the breakdown of his like career going on a spiral unless he does something about it. Um, you you always play the bad guy on these shows. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, and there are also some cuts like that when uh, DiCaprio's waiting in the set of Lancer and uh, the character... Oh, yeah, he plays Lancer's son. Uh, played by Timothy Oliphant is, is just sort of like... He's just talking with him about random stuff and then he asks him if he wasn't a great escape or not. Hey, Rick, I gotta ask you something I heard about. Was it true you almost got the McQueen part in The Great Escape? And there are just these like quick cuts. I mean, almost like jump cuts. And and the thing is, there are I mean, there are some some scenes in a movie that like everything from the directing to the to the I mean to the actual frames and the cuts that are just so perfect. Like the whole uh, the whole thing is is like on such a tight grip. And I'm referring to the the Spawn Ranch. Sequence. Well, when he wakes up, I'll let him know you came by. I'd really like to say a quick hello now, while I'm here. Came a long ways. Don't know when I'll get back this way again. And yeah. uh, obviously the ending sequence. I mean, they're so well made. But I think the other scenes stand out in comparison. Tarantino's editor had died like a couple of years ago. I think it was somewhere between the shooting of Django. I don't know if before or after, that greatly affected uh, the the pace and the cutting of Tarantino's films. Wow! If Sally Mank, that's that's uh, his editor, was still alive, she would have you know cut a lot of the story bits out and just made it more compact. But at mm-hmm. least in terms of like the actual cuts, I, I did notice a lot of things that seemed again, like I said, a little sloppy to me, and I I'm, I'm sure. Uh, that something like that wouldn't have passed with her if she was still around. I'm not sure who's the editor now, but uh, I mean, after having worked with her for the majority I've got of his down films, Fred Raskin. Uh, Fred Raskin. But uh, after like working with him for the majority of his films, I can, I can at least in in my perception, I think that that probably did affect a lot of the way he cuts his films. Now we need to mention what we're going to do yeah. next. Next one. I'd really like to do it. <laughs> Like taking advantage of the of you know Oscar season and everything, Parasite. Because I really want you to watch that, dude. Yeah, we should do that. Okay. All right. So that's it from us, really, at Film Couch, talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'd just like to remind you guys, the listeners, that you can email us questions, thoughts, suggestions, concerns, complaints, whatever else. You can send them all to filmcouchpodcast at gmail dot com. That's filmcouchpodcast at gmail dot com. All right, so thank you for listening to episode two. Uh, It's bye from me, and Nicola is going to sign us out. Take care, guys. Have a good week, and uh, and yeah, just uh, just keep on the lookout for the Oscars. If if Parasite doesn't doesn't win uh, best movie, best script, best editing, best director, uh, you you know it's just unfair as always. This is Joe checking in whilst editing. Um, The Oscars was last night, and just wanted to say fuck you, Nicola, for being absolutely bang on right about that wow it's that good i'm excited then <laughs> yeah that sounds as real as a donut you are real right i'm as real as a donut mother <laughs> <laughs> can help trying yourself trying to get some kind of once <laughs> yeah once upon a time in hollywood reference in the end there all right guys that's it from us thank you very much and see you in the next one